Welcome to Talking Water with GMW, where we discuss all things water with some of the most interesting people across GMW and the water industry. In this episode, we are joined by GMW Director Alana Johnson to mark International Women's Day. Alana is a founding member of Women in Agriculture and the chair of the Victorian Women's Trust. She talks about the importance of equality in the water industry and how people can be agents for change within their workplaces. We'll be releasing new episodes on the first weekend of every month, so be sure to check back in for more. about yourself, Alana, and how you ended up in this northern Victorian part of the world? Well, I grew up as part of a fifth generation farm family from southwest Victoria, and I can only reflect back and think of all the generations of invisible farm women that I've come from, women who've been part of the pioneering and settling of European activity in this country and who really were invisible. And I think of my grandmother who, when she was young, she wasn't even allowed to have a vote. So I think that when you're the product of a number of generations of unrecognised and invisible farm women, certainly in the 1970s, something happened that radically changed rural Australia forever. And that was Gough Whitlam making university education free. So... In 1974, with many thousands of other young rural women, we just all headed off and flooded into our universities. I ended up at La Trobe University. I chose La Trobe because it seemed more rural than Melbourne University. That seemed all a bit too daunting. And it was fresh. It only just begun in 67. Yeah. it It was beautiful. And I think the other thing that happened sort of fortuitously, 1974 was right in the middle of the second wave women's movement. So, you know, Jermaine Greer was active. Everybody was reading The Female Eunuch. We had feminism as a subject at university for the first time ever. It was a really exciting time to be part of all of that and had, as you could imagine, a huge impact on my life and the lives of many other rural young women. So it was really this huge movement of women making this huge shift to be probably the first in their family to have university education ever. And I was one of those. So what happened by the end of the 1970s and into the early 80s is young women were heading back to rural and regional Victoria, never to be the same again, (laughs) certainly not to lead the lives that their mothers and grandmothers led. And I think that what we saw was a, a whole generation of women who firstly, when they got married, usually had higher qualifications than their husbands, which was just a huge shift. That's a seismic shift in society when that happens. And also, we're no longer prepared to be the farmer's wife or the invisible nurse or teacher who earns the money off the farm to keep the farm going and see that as her lot. So a, a huge change happened in the 1980s as young rural women found one another and we formed the Victorian Rural Women's Network. Young women started talking together, wanting things to change, wanting to be recognised as part of the agriculture sector, wanted to have a voice, wanted to be acknowledged as clients by the banks and by elders and Dalgettys and the Department of Agriculture, 
which in the past had just ignored women. We really made some huge changes and gains in the 1980s as actually we got loud and we got demanding. Yes. Um, So what had you studied at uni? So I went to university having no idea what university had to offer and having no family to advise me about that. And I ended up there in an arts degree doing sociology, which I didn't even know what it was. And it was the most amazing thing I could ever have chosen because it's the study of society and how society works. So I could never have had a better grounding to, in the end, you know, living a life of being a change agent in trying to change society. And I actually stayed at university and did two degrees because (laughs) after I finished that, I then went on and did a Bachelor of Social Work. And again, from a a perspective of uh, focused on social change and social justice and what needed to happen in society for that to occur, I didn't go back to the Western District. I ended up coming to North East Victoria because my partner, whom I met at university, he came from Wodonga and we actually ended up settling on a farm at Benalla. And and we're still there now. And so we were just like, the the young women like I were just so ready to see ourselves having agency. For the first time, we had agency to create the future that we thought we should have as And it's amazing that story that is running through that feminism arc is that social justice imperative. Did that come from your parents or where did you get that kind of thirst for social justice? It's a really interesting story because in my early adult years, having been brought up in a fairly conservative Catholic family and going to a Catholic girls' school, And then actually in year 12, joining the big boys Catholic boarding school down there, in 1973, the boys treated us abominably. They really did. They really believed, and this is just atrocious for people to think now, that they really believed girls weren't as smart as boys. And there was just an assumption about that. So that was enough to set my sights high and prove them wrong, which is what I did. But I do think the one thing that it did give me, and and, and I think this came from the nuns that taught me, social justice was a fundamental sort of principle in my education. So I think there were some great lessons that probably were foundations that took me forward. And certainly I now look at my family and my siblings and we all ended up in jobs that sort of were around serving people. You know, there's a nurse in my family, a brother who entered the SES. I did social work. You can see a strong thread there that Mm. probably came from my family and our Catholic background. Yeah, and that's interesting then that you've moved up to the north, you know, around Benalla, and then tell me about this next chapter in your life. So you sound like You obviously wanted to take some leadership roles and spread your wings a little bit. So I think it took us about 10 years to bring what had happened in Melbourne in terms of that second wave women's movement into rural and regional Victoria. And it was a bit hard going at the time. You know, a lot of women were reluctant to call themselves a feminist. There was all that stuff about trying to usurp men or you're a man hater or all sorts of things that happened so there was a period of time that it was hard slog and it would never have happened if women hadn't come together and sort of supported each other through that so we knew about movements 
we had seen what had happened and we created this rural women's movement, which really was world leading. And from that, we created the Australian Women in Agriculture, the organisation. I was one of the people that started that because we knew that without advocacy, that the fundamental things that needed to change wouldn't. Like women on farms couldn't get superannuation because they weren't considered to even have a job. Yeah. You know, some really fundamental things like that. So we moved from sort of supporting one another to change things at our local level to seeing that at a at a broader political level, there were some really serious things that needed to be addressed and we needed to get serious about advocacy. In 1994, we held the first international conference for women in agriculture at Melbourne University and we had women from 80 countries come to it. It's the biggest agricultural conference Australia's still ever had and it was a declaration really to Australia and the world that women involved in agriculture were actually taking it front on yes. and heading, heading into the future together. So I suppose those experiences really taught me a lot of skills and to be bold and to have vision and to also know that you can, as ordinary people, create change if you go about it in an informed and sort of savvy way. Yeah. Um, as, yeah. as women, I think we proved that. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? So that first group that you formed, that you were part of, where did those women come from? Was it just a group of, as you said, women that just started talking to each other and realised your skill set and, and your thirst and passion for change? So I think the emergence of the Rural Women's Network in the mid-80s in Victoria was the sort of the seedbed for all of this. Little groups of women were popping up all over the state talking to one another about how they were going to hold on to what they wanted in their lives and make their lives different. And so I think it's through that early networking and the support that women decided that they could think bigger and bolder. And when the call went out to have a an organising committee for the agricultural conference, women came from everywhere. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and in the whole, you know, 40-whatever years, we've never been short of women who will come forward at any stage when anything needed to be done. And so those organisations continue. From that international conference in Melbourne, we then went on and had one in Washington and one in Spain. Wow. We had one in South Africa. So, and Australian women were a force to be reckoned with. I was involved in setting up women in agriculture in Ireland. Oh, um, that would have been a good trip. <laughs> and and, um, and I've done a lot of work in India with women yeah. over there. So really, Australian women actually saw their platform being the world of agriculture from that time. And so many of us have done incredible things and had amazing opportunities. Probably one of the most profound ones is the work that Australian women in agriculture have done in Papua New Guinea, yeah. where women's lives were truly a misery, you know, and still are in many ways. But, you know, the work that's being done in Papua New Guinea is is profound work. But that's so interesting about empowering other women and how it sort of catches on like wildfire, doesn't it? So tell me how you ended up here at Golden Murray Water and working with us and on the board. By the time I decided to put up my hand for the Golden Murray Water Board or a water board at that stage, it wasn't necessarily that I was going to be appointed to Golden Murray Water. I think I'd come to the stage where I had learned an awful lot about creating change. 
I had learned an awful lot about empowering people and I developed a lot of skills around engagement and setting a context that ordinary people felt like they could have a voice and get involved. And of course, I'd been farming all that time too on our cattle farm over here in Benalla and had been involved in a lot of different agricultural organisations up until that stage. And my move towards water was really from a point of view of my sense of social justice, of ordinary people having a say in the future, of the future of agriculture, of being an environmentalist, coming together and saying the future of water is one of the most important things that is a current issue. So water seemed like a logical place for me to take all of that because I really do believe there are so many complex issues bound up in water, the environmental issues, the cultural issues for Indigenous people, the rights of ordinary, everyday Australians who pay their taxes to have access to water. There is some really fundamental principles about the common good when you talk about water and it not becoming just another commodity that's traded, but that it actually has other values. So water seemed like a really useful place for me to take my skills and particularly around that the future of water needed the voice of all people, not just the voice of people who owned water licences or who were in government. Yeah, and a woman with this amazing kind of leadership background and social justice. Yeah, you're an absolute attribute and we're very lucky to have you, Lana. As a woman in this kind of leadership role in the water sector, I would say there have been probably some challenging aspects to the role. Can you give me a little description of some of the biggest challenges that you've faced in coming into the water sector? Yes, some of the challenges in the water sector. Well, let's look at some of the pros and cons. One of the most amazing things that's happened in Victoria by this particular government has been the move towards appointing all government boards 50% women. Now, that's breakthrough. And the reason it's breakthrough is because we all know now about unconscious bias. We all know about what operates that keeps people from actually moving towards diversity for all sorts of reasons. I'll divert and tell you a little story. Back in the early 2000s, Kathy McGowan, my dear friend and colleague who then became the member for Indi, Kathy McGowan and I twice applied to be appointed to a Rural Industries Research and Development Corporation board, a federal board, and twice didn't even get an interview. And that was at a stage when the Rural Industry Research and Development Corporations, all of them, had barely one woman, let alone two, on their boards. It it was just mind-boggling to us that people with our credentials couldn't even get an interview. I can tell you, eventually, applying the third time, I did get appointed (laughs) in 2011. So I actually decided that I had to keep going because I had to push that change. We've got a long way to go. So I suppose I'm trying to set a context that the journey for women onto boards has been incredibly hard, which is why what the Victorian government have done in saying let's put 50% women on boards is such a breakthrough thing because it was so hard to break through regardless of your credentials. There was just so much going against you. The old cultural practices of how boards were constructed, they'd been there for so long, it was so hard. 
So coming into the water industry was really interesting. So we had a whole influx of women which were onto boards, which is fantastic. But I mean, the water industry is certainly, from a gender point of view, a really interesting industry to look at. Very heavily male engineer oriented. And thankfully, now we're starting to see a whole lot of young women who are engineers and in those technical jobs and very heavily sort of admin communications women. And, you know, that's slowly changing. So there was a lot of sort of genderized roles in the water industry that just sort of evolved. So I'm happily part of seeing that change, as no doubt we all are, and making sure that we do proactive things to create greater diversity in opportunity in our workforce for not only women, but people of non-English speaking background, our Indigenous people, whatever. So that's been a huge part of my wanting to be there too. In terms of the challenges to me as an individual, I can only say that the board that I've entered at Golden Murray Water has been the most welcoming board of me as a woman and all the other women around the table. The the men that we've worked with have been absolutely wonderful to work with and I have had an opportunity of realising what it's like to do that serious board work without actually having any concerns about your gender and that that might work against you. Yeah. So I, I can only commend the people who've been my fellow board members during my time. And now to think that we've got not only a, a woman who's a chair, but a woman who's the GM is an extraordinary example of just how well our organisation has moved in that direction and that they are there because of their skill and their expertise and they're fabulous. So we have come a long way And I'm happy to be part of watching Golden Murray Water become the sort of organisation where whatever diversity is embraced and that we become a place of uh, opportunity for everybody. And that's an exciting thing to be part of. Absolutely, which leads me into this wonderful topic that we're heading into and celebrating next week, which is International Women's Day. What do you see the significance of International Women's Day and what's your involvement been in in this space, Lana? So to track back a little, Claire, um, I'm the chair of the Victorian Women's Trust and I have been for a few years and I've been a board member for more years than I want to count. The Victorian Women's Trust has been organising International Women's Day events for 35 years. Yeah. It's been a central agency in Melbourne for creating International Women's Day events And I've been part of many of them and I've spoken at many events and been involved in many events. And people often say to me, why do we still need an International Women's Day? And, you know, it's a really interesting question because they look around them. And particularly it was asked by a lot of women, believe it or not, in the early 2000s when they were feeling like "Mm, they had plenty of opportunity and things had been gained. And men have asked that question. Uh, And I can only say that International Women's Day, even though it's a day of celebrating women, it really is a day to stop and take note, not only of how much we've achieved for women in Mm. terms of their participation in society, but to reflect on how far we have to go. Yes. So we might have made great gains in women's participation in society, Unfortunately, we have not made great gains in women's personal safety. 
And so we still live in a society where we all know the stuff that's happening, the women who get killed, the levels of domestic violence, the sexual harassment. Young women are calling it out everywhere at the moment, as we know. March for Justice happened only yesterday. It really is up to all of us to actually want to open our eyes and understand and see what fundamental changes we've still got to make in society and that men have got to make in order for women to have personal safety. The other thing that I think is really fundamental and still so discriminatory is how many older women are moving into poverty because they weren't part of the era where women had superannuation. They weren't part of the era when women stayed in full-time employment for their whole career. So they're way behind the eight ball in terms of where they're at when they're retiring financially. There's huge discrimination as these women aren't given any sort of leg up at all by government. And I really think we should be compensating women who gave their lives to raising the next generation and not see them move into homelessness and poverty. So that that's a social justice issue in my mind that's directly affecting women at the moment. And the other thing that continues to astound me is that in a society that values the workplace participation of women and how important they are, that we still actually don't fund from the taxpayer's purse childcare. So the number of women we hear say, I'm not going to return to pay work because I will earn less than what I'd have to pay in childcare. We're losing skilled women and putting them in that sort of position and it's still women who are saying that. I'm not hearing men say, oh, I don't think I should return to work because I'll get paid less than childcare. It's women who are still thinking that the burden of childcare comes out of their purse yes. and their wages. So yeah. International Women's Day is, yes, celebrate women, celebrate what we've achieved, celebrate what women um, have contributed, but also all of us stop and think about what needs to happen and not to take our foot off the pedal at all. Change doesn't happen just because we think it should or just because it's it's the right thing to do. Change happens actually when we drive it. Yes. And if we don't have change agents, if we don't have people's movements, whether it be gay rights or black rights or uh, rights for disabled people or environmental movements, change doesn't happen. So yeah. the women's movement, the work is not finished and the women's movement has to stay strong. And I'm really pleased to say I'm seeing this young generation of women really take up the mantle and are pushing forward for the next gains that need to be made. Yeah, that's wonderful. We're about to launch our Empowering Women Network at Gold Murray Water that I'm involved with as well, which is really considering how we can empower women into leadership roles within Gold Murray Water, particularly some of our engineers. We've got some great female engineers at Gold Murray Water. So that's really exciting, isn't it, to think about how we can really do it from, you know, ground roots up um, in our organisations. And and you and that sometimes the greatest gains you can make are with the people around you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing to be involved in a, a a national movement or an international movement, but sometimes you just have to look over your shoulder and see yeah. the women in your community, in your workplace, how things need to change for them and improve for them. Yeah, that's right. Before I finish up, I just wanted to talk a little bit about any sort of barriers that you faced as a woman in your career 
What would be one of the biggest challenges or discrimination that you've faced in your career? Well, I think there's a range of discriminations. I think the notion of women being valued for how they look and their age and their attractiveness is still a really big part of sort of both conscious and unconscious bias in our society. There's a whole lot of expectations around that, and we see that play out all the time, even to our parliamentarians. We know all of that. So that's such an obvious one. I think that the way our society is structured, you know, and we can call that a patriarchal structure, it was set up to advantage men. It was set up by men. And women are expected to actually move into this structure that's been set up to suit men and and to actually, if you, we've heard terms like have a spoonful of concrete or toughen up princess or whatever, that yeah. we should just accept how the man-made world works and be very grateful that we've been invited and allowed into it. Well, I just don't think that's good enough. In my mind, what's man-made can be unmade and can be remade. I think there's so many things that we actually need to remake for everybody, including men, to be a better place. So I'm going to say that I think the biggest barrier is the sort of accepted structures that we have created in society that are based on power and that for a lot of men, whether they're conscious of it or not, there is a call on them to almost give up some power in order for it to be more equally distributed. That brings with it a whole lot of fears and a whole lot of what's left for me and what's going to be my role. So I do fundamentally think that fears at the base of people holding on to old ways and thinking that if they gave up any power that they might be lessened often has been said about the women's movement back in the day that we were sort of emasculating men. Well, women never wanted to do that. But no. that was the fear that men were talking about. So what I I see as barriers is that whole notion of fear of what equality in all its persuasions, whether it's gender identity, whether it's racial, whether it's disability, that fear of the unknown and fear about what it could mean to me and my identity and my life is actually the biggest barrier. So what we've got to do is get to the stage where people see that moving forward into a more equal world that gives people, all people, opportunity is actually going to be better for all of us. And I think that it's only when we move together to that place with men not despite men, but with men, that will actually see the changes that we need to see happen. My last question, if you were to give any young woman coming up through the rank in rural setting and wanting to get into leadership or have an opportunity to progress their career, what advice would you give a young woman coming into today's society? I think there's probably a couple of sort of golden rules that are difficult but are fundamental to sort of getting ahead, particularly in your career or in any organisation that you want to participate in, even voluntary organisations in your community. And one is to actually put yourself forward, to get rid of that sort of female question about, am I good enough? Do I know enough? And we've got to get past that barrier. They say that 
women will often be held back by their sense of not feeling confident enough to say, well, I'll give it a go anyway, but men aren't. So yeah. there's been different messages given to us as we've been raised. So I, I would say have a go and throw your hat in and be bold and don't let your questions about whether you know enough or you're good enough to hold you back from doing that. And then when you do throw your hat in and you don't get something, just just be okay with it. It's yeah. not failure. You're actually pushing the envelope then. You're part of trying to create change. So accept the rejection as part of that and it's yeah. not failure. So yeah. that's one thing. And the other thing I just can't speak highly enough about is never do it alone. Find a network of people, some mentors, some people at work who are being offered to be your support people, wherever it might be, find other people who can actually support you in taking the big steps that you want to take. It's too hard to do alone. Yes. You've, got to, you've got to have some people that are going to leverage you up. And so the whole notion of finding a network, finding mentors, I think is a really critical part in building the energy and the, and the confidence and the vision and the boldness to take that next step.